0: This week, we'll talk about data ops, And we have a special guest today, Tomasz. Tomasz, or Tomek, is a DataOps who lives in Poland, in Poznan. After working in product analytics, data engineering, data science, and machine learning, he fell in love with operations. And he finds peace in fixing poorly written IAM roles and teaching people. So I really love that line. <laughs> so welcome, Tomek.
1: Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us Like on this kind of niche topic still i hope after this uh let's say podcast or like video uh vlog it will become less niche because it deserves attention in my opinion yours probably as well
0: (laughs) yeah indeed i'm surprised that you worked in so many different roles so probably we'll start our interview with that so before we go into our main topic of data ops and becoming data ops let's start with your background can you tell us about your career journey so far
1: sure if you count to the career, also the university time, uh, then I studied econometrics, which is kind of exotic, uh, or at least was back then. Um, then, uh, kind of accidentally, because a friend of mine shared the information with me that, yeah, this company, Alex is actually hiring. I was never heard of it. <laughs> so, by total accident, I joined the company as a machine learning trainee. But then I was working as a junior data engineer, then as a data scientist, and so on and so on. So so basically alongside like all these uh, roles and, and positions, I believe I touched both positions and uh, like steps in that uh, whole cycle of like uh analyze data, create the model, publish the model, create it on front, and yeah, the, the the Yeah. So because I'm getting easily bored with stuff, I try to touch as much as possible and, and like don't be an expert on uh, one particular domain or one step only. So, like, only building models or only doing the analysis. I wanted to know like what the other folks are doing and why and how this connects to my own work. That's why the scope was rather broad.
0: So, you tried all these positions, all these roles while working at the same company at Realics.
1: Mostly. I didn't work only at OLX. I briefly worked at the Central Statistical Office in, in Poland to, to, to like uh, see how the government statistics uh, look like. So my brief episode with university and some other companies and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But mainly OLX. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you mentioned that you got into OLX as a ML, ML trainee by accident. And I think many of our listeners or people who are watching this might be wondering what was this accident. So can you tell us more about that?
1: Sure. I mentioned the accident because uh, I I haven't actually searched for like specifically like, uh, yeah, I definitely want to be into machine learning and and stuff. I just received the link that Hey, some company is hiring for the machine learning internship. I was like, why not? Why this might be a little bit awkward to some of the listeners, because right now machine learning is, well, a hot topic. Uh, Back then, it's probably hard to believe, but at least in Poland, nobody heard of pretty much about machine learning. It was called back then uh, multidimensional analysis at university. So you basically took the course, like doing all the uh, principal component analysis, classification, clustering, yada, yada, yada but it wasn't called even machine learning it was like multi-dimensional analysis because a lot of folks there were from the statistical background and they got just different naming convention let's say so that was the accident
0: (laughs) yeah so you worked as machine learning trainee then you worked as a junior data engineer then you also worked as a data scientist right so can you tell us what you did like after working as a data scientist you became interested in data ops and you became a data ops. But before you became a data ops engineer, I don't know how to properly call this role. So before you started doing data ops, you were a data scientist. So maybe can you tell us what you were doing, what kind of tasks uh, you had, what kind of respons- responsibilities you had?
1: Sure, I was working mainly in the motors customer unit because Alex got different units and so on and so. So I wasn't in the like uh, core data science team, rather uh, under the one of the business units, I was doing mainly behavioral analysis, so like analyzing clickstream data, uh, trying to do some models on that, like to capture some interesting signals, uh, trying to catch people who might perform action we actually are interested in, and trying to grab them basically. Also, a little bit of product analytics alongside the work, plus, obviously. Some operations because that's how the data ops journey started for me. Because a lot of people might believe that, well, if you are a data analyst or data engineer or data scientist, you don't need like a lot of operation skills. That's a little bit of misunderstanding because even if you are working in data, because if you are a programmer, you are perfectly aware that they are like the SREs, DevOps, and stuff like that. Uh, data, not really. but that might be a little bit of context story, but I guess it's relevant for the further uh, discussion. So let's say you are a data engineer, and out of the sudden you start a new project, and you need to create a new S3 bucket or Kinesis uh, stream or whatever. You believe that you won't be like deeply involved in that because there is a platform team or there is an infra team or whatever other team, like the central core, stuff and you go to them like hey folks i need a new S3 bucket and they are like that's cool so here's the link to the repository uh, create the mesh request and we'll do the review like on priority because we like it. then you're like oh crap i need to learn like terraform telegram atlantis and obviously a cloud provider yeah so that's about like not needing to learn uh, operation skills or maybe as a data analyst um, you also believe that ah, i don't need that stuff but then, out of the sudden, you need to actually understand the data flow in the company. Why? Because you prepared an like awesome report, uh, providing view on some part of the business unit. Uh, the results are pretty important. Uh, they are about to be shared to the, to the leadership, and your boss asks you like the one un- really uncomfy question. How confident you are with the results? Because that 10% drop in the revenue looks kind of suspicious. So, Maybe some ETL job uh, failed this and that. Uh, Maybe some server were basically down. Maybe there's an issue with tracking or or stuff. Yeah. So then out of the sudden, you you need to understand not only your part, but the whole pipeline, or even as a data scientist. You might be thinking that, okay, my job ends pretty much at the level of Jupyter Notebook, and that's it. Then there will be some almighty big data team or like uh, machine learning engineers who will take that stuff and put it on prod. Yes and no. Because, for instance, you created the model that prediction time uh, is like one second. And products folks came to you that, okay, it's cool, but you need to go down to like 300 milliseconds. Oops. Or you create a model that is outputting, uh, let's say, a list of uh, cookies. And some folks from marketing are like, that's super cool, but we don't have any possible tool that is able to consume it. We can consume some rules. So now you realize that, okay, I created the model that is pretty much useless because uh, the output format doesn't match. So those are pretty hard tasks. And it's pretty unexpected for a lot of folks because they are believing that there will be someone else who will be doing that. That's not necessarily true and pretty much that's where the data ops come in because people need help in that manner. And also that is a possibility for a huge misconception here because some listeners might be thinking now that, okay, so now I finally get what data ops is about this will be the person uh, who will create the infrastructure for me or who will do the maintenance for me. Not necessarily. DataOps is the person who will help you to work effectively, who will help you to design the solution, who will basically make your work less scary. He will not do something like for you. He will teach you how to do it effectively.
0: So for you, the teaching was, In your story, you needed the bucket, you needed the Kinesis stream, and then you ask somebody for help, and then they said, "Ah, we're busy, create a pull request, right? Or merge request, whatever. Mm, And you were expecting that that these people would help you, but they kind of said, okay, just do it yourself. And then here is the repo you need to create a merge request for, right?
1: Sort of, but also to maybe defend a little bit uh, the platform teams or the security or, or the SREs, they are not supposed let's say you are asking like uh, the security team to, to to like create a service role for you mm-hmm. it will be not very responsible from their side to like just throw out of the fence some ready to use stuff to someone who doesn't know how this thing is supposed to work they should help you they should do the review they should guide you but not necessarily like do the job for you mm-hmm.
0: So you as a in all these roles that you had over this time, like as a data mm-hmm. engineer as a data analyst, as a data scientist in all these instances you needed to touch the infrastructure, right? And this is how you learned how to do this and this is how you fell in love with doing all this stuff, right?
1: That's totally correct.
0: So when did you realize that you actually enjoy doing this stuff more than your work as a data scientist? How did it happen?
1: I'm glad that's This question was stated because there are, again, uh, a lot of misconceptions about which role in data is more important than than the other role. So before answering the question directly, no role is more important than other role. And especially you might be thinking that, do I need uh, to have a data ops in the company? Answer is no, which might be surprising for some folks. It's not a mission critical role. It's rather a support. Imagine that uh, you are playing a game and you are going to the boss fight and you are going to the particular boss fight with a broken sword and without potions. Is it doable? Yes. Will it be fun? Probably no. So DataOps is kind of that buff, that uh, fixed sword, that's plenty of potions and stuff like that. Yeah? So it's useful, but not necessarily mandatory. And now, answering the question, maybe, Um, why? Because I wanted to solve problems. And it turns out, which kind of correlate with uh, what Andrew Eng, if I'm pronouncing the surname correctly, kind of discovered or trying to make people aware of, is that the whole domain went uh, recently from the model-centric approach to data-centric approach, which essentially means that if you are doing work in some large company and your job is not to create a model to explain the behavior of something and then forget about it you are rather about creating the data product and surprisingly majority of the work in you know, like creating the data product is in operations is in like data not modeling itself so kind of naturally because we were working on like data products we are solving more and more and more of engineering problems not necessarily the scientific ones so that's how i fell in love in that stuff but data ops is not necessarily more important than data science actually with alexi we uh, both know a perfect example of that because while i was transferring from data science to data ops we know uh, one person who was doing actually the opposite one sre with like plenty of experience in operations was going like through the same bridge, but in opposite direction <laughs> from ops to data scientists. So like no career is worse or better than others. Yeah? So like, don't get us wrong.
0: And I think you said at the beginning that for you doing something, the same thing for a long time is boring because you want to do a lot of different things. And uh, I think many people are like that, right?
1: That's also a factor.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so not everyone, but some people are. It's just too boring to keep doing the same thing all the time. And our colleague for him, it was probably boring to do op stuff all the time, right? And he wanted to try something else. I guess so. Yeah. So for you, so you were doing data science and then you realized that like, you need to spend a lot of time doing this infra stuff. And this is where a lot of problems are and to be, like you said, you love solving problems. And I guess you saw that there are a lot of problems with actually OPS part, right? And then for you, the reason you became interested is because like, maybe I misunderstood you, but you felt like, okay, I'm more useful solving these problems and I actually like doing this. That's why you started digging deeper into this. Exactly. And we've been talking about data OPS for quite some time or your transition to this, but we didn't actually discuss what data OPS is. So what is DataOps?
1: I love the explanation that was given on one of the talks in the Data Talks Club, which Chris, if I remember correctly, the grandfather mm-hmm. of uh, DataOps. Essentially, uh, DataOps engineer or whoever is taking a look on how people work, not like uh, doing the f- f- reports himself or herself or like modeling or like putting the models on prot, yada yada yada. he or she is looking at how people work where might be the inefficiencies how to overcome them and basically help people to produce the meaningful results faster a more pleasant way a less scary way and stuff like that so for me, that might be the shortest description possible, which is essentially the same stuff as DevOps are doing. And if you think about that, it's not a new concept. Uh, programmers knew that for some time, that's how DevOps came. But even before Lean, Kaizen, Six Sigma, stuff like that in companies that are producing something physically, that was there and the concepts are Super similar, uh, we are producing software, okay. But the philosophy is exactly the same, emo.
0: Okay, but how is it related to infrastructure and all these things that we talked about? Because you said, okay, DataOps is about solving inefficiencies, helping people overcome problems, and what was uh, produced results faster, right? So how is it related to infrastructure?
1: Excellent question, because DataOps is not infra-only it's also like helping people write uh, better sql queries as simple as that helping people in uh, keeping the let's say the secrets stored in the proper locations and accessing them the proper way and stuff like that but it turns out that a lot of confusion is actually about infra like okay how should i create the s3 buckets through that full gitops yeah so someone might be like okay let's try some example just switch the names and try to apply that and see what will happen. But then Atlantis uh, is returning you some error. Like, ah, crap, I just broke the production. No, everything is okay. But for the first time, if someone never used like the GitOps to uh, make some changes in the infra, it will be scary, honestly. So that's why it's rather a good idea to sit with that person, like literally on the Zoom call, and like go step by step. Do you know Terraform? No. So let's go. Do you know Terragram? No. And blah, blah, blah. And out of the sudden, all the errors, all the concepts became less like ambiguous for the specialists. like getting technology more familiar to like people to, to give it more human face.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned uh, GitOps creating a bucket through uh, Atlantis and Maybe can you walk us through the process, like how exactly this process looks like? Maybe high level without going sure. too technical, just for those who don't know. Well, I think I know a little bit. Maybe I will also check if I know how this thing actually works.
1: I guess you do. <laughs> so essentially, you don't need any stuff like infrastructure as code because that's what uh, Terraform, Terragrant, and all that JS is for, or CloudFormation if you are working with AWS.
0: What is infrastructure's code, maybe before we even go there? Like for those who don't know,
1: good question. So, if you want to create something, you can as well go to your web browser, authenticate, and you can just click here and there and create some resources, some roles, some buckets, some Kinesis streams, stuff like that.
0: Just with your mouse, right? Exactly. In Amazon web interface, right?
1: But then imagine that. You want to create uh, one bucket on staging and one bucket on production. So, you are doing es- essentially the same stuff with uh, changing just a little bit of S3 bucket name or s- some tiny details. Yeah. So, that's how a lot of sm- smart folks in operations came to the conclusion that maybe if we'll define like, all the configurations, all the infrastructure as code, not as clicking here and there, it will be more manageable. We can do some audits we can do like all that stuff via match requests uh, which can be reviewed and like everybody in the company will be able to create a match request as they see it and then someone from more infra teams uh, will go there and check your match request but everybody can do so that's the enablement so essentially you are writing some terraform which is huge config file. Let's put it that way. Terragrant is putting some variables to the Terraform code and what Atlantis displaying all the changes that are about to be made in the pull request or the match request. When you can review what will be changed and the given procedure, let's say, will be applied. So it's kind of a dry run. And then after like forgetting the approval from commissaries or whoever, you can just click on match or uh, before that Atlantis apply, and the changes are made to the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That's probably a little bit technical still, but I guess the higher level overview.
0: So maybe I'll try to summarize. So we have infrastructure is called tools, and. Terraform is one of them. So with Terraform, we can create a config, and with this config, we create a bucket. We create know, this Kinesis stream that you mentioned as a config, right? As, as code, right? And mm-hmm. then typically, without Git, what we would do is we would do something like Terraform apply on our computer, right? But with GitOps, the way we do it is instead of getting this code and running this locally, we create a branch, right? In this branch. We mm-hmm. put this piece of code and then we create a pull request or a merge request, right? And then what Atlantis is doing, it's applying Terraform or trying to see what would happen if we apply this to our, I don't know, cloud account, right? And then mm-hmm. somebody comes and sees, okay, you're like an SRE, some DevOps person comes or data ops, if you will, comes, sees that your code is not breaking anything. They accept the merge request and then you merge and then at the end of this process, you have a bucket and the Kinesis stream
1: in your account, right? That's the process. Exactly like that. You mentioned something that I haven't, because essentially without GitOps, as Alexis said, you will be doing all that stuff from your laptop. So like you will have to have the proper Terraform version, all other tools. And now imagine some poor data analyst trying to install <laughs> Terraform Configure that. Whoa, that will be painful.
0: Yeah, I think um, it was the biggest problem. So at Toilix, we thought that it's a good idea to ask data scientists to work on infrastructure. And for that, they needed to clone this repository with Terraform and then do Terraform apply and then apply these changes to the cloud, right? And then the biggest problem was actually installing this and making sure you can apply. And then many people couldn't do this because it's just too difficult and this this is not what data Mm -hmm. scientists are trained to do typically, right? So this is not what we learn at university, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess for you, this part, you liked it, right? So you enjoyed doing this thing.
1: Yes. To be a little bit more specific, I haven't enjoyed...
0: <laughs> you didn't enjoy. <laughs>
1: okay. It wasn't that much about like creating the info. I, I haven't fallen in love in uh, creating Terraform code. It was rather mm-hmm. about helping people do it, like making them comfortable with that stuff that was the the main part of doing data ops for me
0: okay so one of the questions i wanted to ask you is how did you actually learn this thing how did you become a data ops but i think from what i understood is you just simply had to do this, and then you would have a Zoom call with uh, some sort of a uh, SRE or platform engineer who would guide you th- through this process. Who would explain you what Terraform is, what other things are, how exactly you need to create this merge request mm-hmm. to get your S3 bucket, and this is how you learn, right?
1: More or less yes, but also to make the process easier. If I would start again, learning the same stuff, I would definitely uh, narrow the scope because. If you're asking some DevOps engineer, like, uh, okay, I want to be more into operation stuff, like, what should I learn? Linux, uh, then some cloud provider, uh, then Docker, Kubernetes, and yada, yada, yada. I would be like, okay, so after five years, I will maybe become useful finally. Uh, which is a <laughs> kind of misunderstanding, Emo, because if you are working in the data space, AWS got, what, probably like 200 plus? Different services, maybe more. Can the list, and then answer your yourself if you will be like spawning some fleet of IoT robots. I have doubts. If you will be working on the quantum computing, I have doubts. If you will be working on the ground stations, probably not. And after the pre-filtering, you came to the conclusion that okay, I need really uh, the IAM roles, EC2 machines, uh, S3 buckets. Kinesis maybe? emr so out of 200 services you will you will learn that okay i actually need 20 of them so that narrows the the scope a bit a good example of the possible roadmap could be the roadmap.sh slash devops probably it's pretty accurate also for the data domain but i would say good enough is quite okay so you don't have to spend like five years in uh, some kind of basement constantly training, learning, and then finally you became like the useful guy. Uh, not necessary. Every single team, like security, SREs, platform team, whoever, got their list of like least favorite tasks. For SREs, it might be like, okay, every single resource needs to be tagged uh, with like uh, name equals something, uh, the owner equals something, the on-call guy equals something. Every single resource needs to be tagged. This is the sort of the task that nobody likes to do. So if you are a junior in the operations domain, you're basically going there and asking for the kind of rookie tasks. And that will be super helpful to give you that. Alongside of doing so, you will learn a ton. And everybody will basically love you. Because you are, you are taking the crappiest work possible out of them. And at the same time, you are actually learning. So it's a win-win situation. Or like, let's say, a security team. They might have problems with, like, folks are using, like, privileged mode in the Kubernetes runners, like Docker, Docker it's kind of not okay. So you have to identify all such cases, and like, go team by team, and explain to them how Kaniko works. Um, so it's also a completely rookie task. You will learn a ton of, um, while doing so. You will know better the people you will be working with. And again, it's a win-win situation. So establish the connections. Make people from the technical teams uh, know about you. Plus teach others, obviously. And also, start simple. You don't have to start from administrating the Kubernetes cluster. You can just build the Docker image on your laptop, then push it to some registry, then push it to the different registry, like first time to the maybe uh, GitLab registry, then to ECR. Then try to apply the, some security scanning, uh, then create that on the CI pipeline instead of your laptop, then add some steps and blah, blah, blah. Yeah? And out of making some little steps, you will finally like go to the more or less the end of the path into the that particular task. <laughs> One last piece of advice on the learning process, accept that it will be uncomfy. If you are from the data domain, you are probably closer to the PhD in stats than to the Linux admin. So now out of being like senior data scientist or super powerful machine learning engineer or whoever, you are going to some very different domain. So it will be like forcing a weightlifter to do cardio training it's a different speciality so it will be uncomfy and it doesn't mean that you are i don't know unqualified or the worst case stupid or, or whoever yeah? it's just a different domain it will be tough you got some folks out there to support you
0: Yeah. speaking of that so right now we have a machine learning engineering course and we are currently covering the deployment module
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so far for many students up to few, week five we're on week five not right now it was fine because it was jupyter notebook but now all of a sudden from this convenient comfortable environment of a jupyter notebook we end up doing things in the terminal mm-hmm. and for you i have a question so you have i think you studied econometrics right you mentioned that then you worked as a data scientist and i guess this Linux admin stuff wasn't something you like life prepared you to do, right? So how did you learn this thing? So how did it become comfortable for you to work in this?
1: environment? Honestly, by doing every possible mistake that was about to be done. I know this might sound stupid, but that's how it was. But what may help you in like feeling more comfortable with the command line is to do the proper setup and ask them basically what they have uh, installed and what for. Because honestly, terminal without autocompletion, without syntax highlighting, without uh, proper bash-rc, it's not a comfy place. So with um, the proper bash-rc setup, it will be much more friendly. You will see immediately the possible mistakes, commands will autocomplete, it will be just better.
0: Okay, what if I don't have an SRE who already configured bash-rc and can just share this information for me? What is the best place to look? This kind of information
1: i'm super glad you asked this because my answer for that kind of questions is always the same there's a place uh, called youtube which is awesome
0: <laughs> i thought you would say google
1: <laughs> Nah, google is uh, well it's also awesome because you got like articles on uh, hacker news medium whatever but it may happen that someone on youtube already created uh, like full-blown video about how to configure let's say all my zsh or anything about that so basically type um, command line tutorial course setup uh, whatever and i bet you 50 bucks that there will be something in the first 10 results Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think I saw a couple of videos like that, that are one uh, hour long, some of them are even longer, that show you how to set up your environment from nothing, from a clean Windows, uh, Mac OS, Linux, whatever you use. Mm-hmm. I saw a video with uh, Windows because uh, one year ago I switched from Ubuntu to Windows and I needed to prepare the environment for that. And of course, for me, everything was alien. And I found a tutorial that just walked me through the entire thing, like how should I set up a terminal, and then at the end it was like uh, you know usual Linux. So yeah, that single video I unfortunately don't remember that video, but yeah, it wasn't difficult. I think it was one of the top results.
1: Well, people just love to create videos, and mm-hmm. there's a high chance that someone already created something for exactly your case, like how to set up uh, Kubernetes cluster from scratch, or the full course about how to prepare for uh, AWS solutions architect uh, certificate. There you go, like for free <laughs> on basically YouTube, like the most common place to search for the car pictures or actually movies or pictures.
0: Yeah. We have a few questions and two of these questions, and um, they ask about the overlap between data ops and data engineering. What is your, in your opinion, the overlap? Is there any overlap, and if there is, uh, what is it?
1: Uh, between data ops and data engineering, Emo data engineer will be more operational. Like he or she will be actually doing some pipelines, preparing some quality checks or whatever. Uh, data ops will honestly, uh, gee, if I remember correctly, my statistics from Google Calendar uh, when I was working as a data ops in Olex, it was like twenty-five hours average per week on Zoom calls. So, data engineer will probably spend more time, actually, in Pycharm, <laughs> and data ops will spend more time on Slack and Zoom. Okay,
0: and these Zoom calls, like what we were doing exactly, like helping others, I guess, to with problems.
1: Exactly, most often, uh, honestly, live coding, designing some solutions. Because if you think about like which uh, domains maybe data ops touch, it's essentially past. Uh, meaning absorbing the technical depth, the present meaning handling the uh, user's requests, like the daily problems. And you're also thinking about the future. So maybe you just prepare the um, kind of summary of how the past month went. Okay. So most people have had problems with some service roles for the GitHub runners because like they have to go like to 12 different repositories. So now you are talking with the reason that guys, we might want to simplify that. Because there's a yet again, uh, there's a problem with this process being like too complicated. So maybe we should do something about this. And also, you're educating people. So imagine you got like newcomers to the company, like someone have been onboarded by HR, but HR can onboard you about like what are the teams, what are the structure, who will your boss be, uh, where you can ask for this or that. Uh, but the technical onboarding will be probably on the shoulders of data ops and it's also your job then uh, to catch the newcomers to the company and make them comfortable
0: so maybe i'll try to summarize so data engineers actually work in the PyCharms vs code and so on but data ops mostly use zoom and slack and other things <laughs> that is how like for me that was the summary but i guess there, there is more to that So there's mostly like support uh, also from. At least with the series that I see, my colleagues, they always have something open, like some sort of dashboard or something like this. Grafana. Grafana, exactly. Or New Relic. Mm-hmm. So not only they help people who come with ad hoc requests to them, but also they see, okay, yeah, something is off here. Let me take a look what's inside.
1: And they're trying to be proactive. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. So you said you spent quite a lot of, or like when you in this position, you spent a lot of time doing live coding. Supporting education. So it means, from what I understood, you already need to be quite experienced person to work as a data ops. And uh, do you need to be a data engineer in the past to be successful in this role? Or what what kind of background is actually useful for this role? Or not useful, but how to say suitable?
1: Any background in any data position, Emo. Any. Any. Whether you were like senior analysts, senior data engineers, senior uh, data scientists, whoever, it will be useful. Why? Because you don't have to be an expert. You will be serving as a middleman between, let's say, the platform team, the security team, the SRE team, and the users, meaning like data analysts, engineers, scientists. So, majority of the cases are literally not that hard. So It's uh, more than enough to like be able to read the log and try to figure out what is actually happening. You were actually working uh, previously as a Java developer, if I remember correctly, so you definitely know how verbose the error messages. Yes,
0: very. But, but Python is not different. Yeah. It's sometimes even worse.
1: Which basically means that if you are able to help people understand the logs, if you can help them um, understand how the cross-account roles will work in AWS, it's more than enough. You don't have to be like super expert, meaning if you will out of the sudden need to set up DNS records here and there, there will be some SRE who will be super glad uh, that you are asking him or her about the technical questions because uh, SREs like technical questions. Typically, they are not super thrilled. To explain someone like over and over again how assuming roles work. They are more thrilled about some ah, really complex issue in Kubernetes cluster that's keep them up and running. And you are taking that, let's say, unpleasant or less favorite part from them, leaving them with the more technical side, which is like again a win-win for both sides.
0: Yeah, there are a few things I still want to ask mm-hmm. you. So we talked a bit about skills and there, there is actually a comment. So what you said, because there there is 200 or even more services in AWS, you don't need to use all of them. And then somebody commented that this is the Pareto principle applied to AWS services. But still, apart from these services that you mentioned, like IAM roles, EC2, S3, EMR, uh, we also have Docker, we also have Kubernetes, we also have CI, CD tools, we also have this Prometheus, Grafana. And I even haven't started uh, you know, mentioning data specific tools, right? These are all general software engineering tools, right? General SRE DevOps tools. Mm-hmm. So, like, how to, <laughs> to actually start learning all that? What are the minimal operational skills that I need to have to be able to work in this role?
1: If they have to be minimal, then it has to be a really narrow set a little bit of context i've read uh, some time ago an excellent article it was i believe called uh, good enough practices in scientific computing or something like that someone went through like all the best practices they advised the best practices or the best set of tools to someone and then after some weeks checked if that list and that training actually changed anything answer was only partially, because if you introduce someone to like oh, all the best in class, it might be complicated. So if someone never worked with any version control system, let's start with Dropbox, honestly. If you are still keeping passwords in some passwords.txt, uh, password manager, please. Uh, YubiKey, maybe, but start with password manager, honestly. Command line, like if you will set up properly, The command line, then it will make your work and your life basically so much easier. And if you will be working then with some data ops, devops, SRE, whoever, he or she will be also like super happy because uh, they will not spend time trying to figure out what have you done in your command line. They will recognize the common stuff that that they already know. Meaning like you are somehow experienced already. Which will be then easier for them to diagnose the real problems here and there. So I would say the minimal operational skills for everybody, whether this will be like data ops or just data analyst or whoever, version control system, probably Git, command line. To some extent, it will be enough to just uh, know how to move between the directories, uh, how to grab something, how to cut something, how to assume the role in the AWS CLI pretty much it uh, plus password manager plus as i said i am roles uh, which essentially me- means i am why i'm like stressing that i am part uh, over and over again because like honestly 90% of the errors are about access denied and being able to run AWS sts get identity to know at which role i'm i'm currently in is super powerful and super simple at the same time and Just drawing the different, like, okay, this role can be assumed from that role, and that role can be from that role, just writing that down on some piece of paper.
0: So one thing Adonis (laughs) (laughs) mentioned that... So what we talked about largely sounded like a data management role. So all these Zoom calls, all this support in Slack, all this trying to, I don't know, live code with somebody, from what I see, managers also often do it, especially with somebody who is, uh, let's say, less senior. So they often do it with juniors, with maybe middle level people, like all this kind of work. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between a data ops person and a data manager person, somebody who is mentoring people?
1: Mm, that would be quite simple to explain, because usually data managers has their own team. Mm-hmm. The fixed set of like five or six or or ten or whatever. Of some folks, and you as a data ops will be working like across different teams, across different uh, business units, whatever yeah so you will be observing some uh, slack channel like data support something, and that will be pretty much for everybody. You will definitely have some splits if you are not not the only one doing data ops in the company, so someone will take the request from uh, that business unit, uh, someone will take from other business unit. But essentially, you will be working with the larger number of people, like not only the fixed set of like five or six. So data manager will also go like to one prepare promotion plans, plan some sprints, stuff like that. And you will be rather like working with multiple different teams, but also with data managers, definitely, yes.
0: Mm -hmm. But also maybe data managers, at least a typical data manager, might not have uh, kubectl installed, they might not have Kubernetes
1: access Uh,
0: (laughs) configured, so they might not be able to actually log into Kubernetes cluster and check what are the logs there and what could be happening there. Mm -hmm. But a data ops person will probably have these things,
1: right? Probably yes. But also, uh, a fun fact, Kubernetes is not that present in the data domain. If you are like mm-hmm. uh, in the software engineering side, uh, and you are a DevOps, not DataOps, then definitely Kubernetes will be your bread and butter. Like Every single thing will be on that platform, let's say, because what we are doing, essentially, some front-end, some APIs, which is what Kubernetes is sued for. If you are in the, in the data domain, you've like, got a ton of batch jobs. Which is not necessarily the first use case for for Kubernetes, it it will be most probably rather like ECS, um, AWS Batch, or I don't know, GitLab, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jenkins, that sort of things.
0: I think you you can still run Kubernetes jobs, but yeah, it's not the first choice, right? So sometimes there are simple services that we can use from AWS or other cloud providers.
1: With Kubeflow, obviously you, you can, but mm-hmm. as you said, it won't be the first choice, I guess.
0: Okay. Yeah, we have uh, a few questions. So one of the questions is what was your most interesting project and why?
1: Well, the one I spent the most time on was migrating a lot of workloads, almost 600 from like all Jenkins servers to GitLab CI, uh, it wasn't the most interesting because of the migration, because migrations are honestly pretty boring. What was interesting was working with like pretty much the whole company (laughs) at the same time on one project, because everybody and their mothers have had some ETL job somewhere on some Jenkins instance. So that was the fun part, like working with pretty much everybody, but the most, maybe not interesting, but funny was with debugging actually. SREs plus contractors plus whoever were trying to move some Kinesis reader from old EC2 machine to Kubernetes, actually, because stream processing is a perfect use case for Kubernetes. Okay, fine. And I guess the count of people who were into that debugging process finally reached like nine or Mm ten. Super experienced guys, honestly and they were just okay it's dockerized uh, we got the helm chart everything is set service accounts are properly done and deployed and yada. yada, yada. yet the application just starts and Im- immediately dies out of nowhere uh, then i joined that effort and one of the first questions i asked was like hey guys do we actually know that the library versions on that ec2 machine in inside that Container are actually the same as the ones we have there. And someone was like, oh "Okay, you are a junior in the operation space. You probably don't know how Docker actually works." Yeah, the yeah. I was like, "Okay, maybe I, I indeed don't." But then we scanned how the Docker file was actually created. It was fetching the requirements txt, and the versions weren't specified there. So out of the sudden, when well, we just packed. Uh, the library version, it was the problematic one was wasycoPG, the Postgres driver. and the whole fix was like four characters.
0: It took mm-hmm.
1: a quarter.:
0: <laughs> Yeah because this uh, discovered that.: Yeah, PsychoPG relies on a binary like there is some binary code in Python right, but mm-hmm. you don't see any stack traces. It just dies and kills the entire container, right? Yeah, sounds like fun.
1: <laughs> the problem was that the code was prepared to work with, I don't know, version like two seven something. And without the version being like specified, then when folks try to run the task stuff on Kubernetes, it, it fetched the latest. And the API changed, which is the perfect use case. I'm telling everybody when they are asking questions like why we have to use like uh, fixed versions because it's boring why we just just can't use like any version like latest okay. that's exactly why that's a good story at the beginning
0: you told us a story when you worked in analytics and somebody the management asked you how confident are you in the results so how do you usually answer this question
1: that i'm as comfy as we get money to check all the edge cases okay. <laughs> because the same manager who asked me uh, that question was the same who like healed me totally from checking every single possible edge case and like error because if you are working in like uh, basic research and by basic i i mean rather does the name but it implies that it, it might be simple it's not it's like the fundamental research in uh, the academia then you basically are receiving the TSV file and and that's it. If you are working in the company, data is flowing constantly. So tracking changes, policy changes, whatever changes, pipeline changes, schema changes, like everything changes constantly and the failure is the only constant. As Werner Vogels said, everything fails all the time. And Vogels is the CTO, I guess, currently also of AWS. So he probably knows what he was talking about. So I remember when I was checking some some clickstream data and i was looking for errors before like presenting the results maybe let's check if uh, all things are like set properly and doing that my manager came in and, and like okay are you done uh, like almost still i got some some like edge cases in 10000 records and he asked like out of how many <laughs> i was like eh. 400 million (laughs) like okay so you are checking like 10,000 records out of 400 million and you are spending time on that congratulations so uh, okay it won't be perfect like never Mm -hmm. but definitely is a wise idea to for instance if you are working with with airflow and you are seeing that your your pipelines are like all green and so on so what does it actually mean that the records were inserted into the given table, or that the network didn't fail, as it did for me today. Uh, the answer might be sometimes surprising. That's okay, uh, zero records inserted, the drop is still green. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff might be checked before presenting some extraordinary results to leadership, because extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof.
0: Yeah, that actually happened to me. Green jobs in Airflow with zero records inserted.
1: I know that feel, bro.
0: Like I guess everyone had to experience this. Okay, now it's time to, to wrap up. Before we finish, do you want to maybe you forgot to mention something and you want to bring it up?
1: Super pleasure to be here and thank you for the invitation. And thank you, like, all for being here with us.
0: Thanks, Tomek, for joining us today. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today, too, for asking questions. And I wish everyone to have a great weekend. Bye, Tomek. See yeah, folks. Thank you. Bye, everyone.